Good morning, everybody. My name is George Khalife, host of Let's Grab Coffee. This is episode eight with Mr. Jeff Dennis. Jeff is a lawyer and serial entrepreneur. He's the counsel and entrepreneur in residence at Faskin Martineau, one of the largest Canadian law firms. Uh, he's also the co-founder of the Toronto chapter of Young Entrepreneurs, which is now called uh, Entrepreneurs Organization. He's created Lessons from the Edge seminars, where he brings entrepreneurs to share uh, some of the big mistakes they've done and the lessons they've learned from them. Uh, and actually, this is what inspired Jeff to write his book, Lessons from the Edge. He has he is a sought-after public speaker. He's spoken around the world in countries like Thailand, India, Malaysia, Nepal, U.S., and Canada. Jeff, thanks so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. I'm glad awesome. you're here. Good morning. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I'm assuming my audience right now, when, when they're hearing entrepreneur residents, might not understand the term. So can you just add a little clarity to that? Well, yeah. So I'm uh, a lawyer by education, uh, but after practicing law very briefly at the beginning of my career, I uh, started a business with some colleagues and ran a business for over 25 years. And um, so I'm really more entrepreneur than lawyer. Uh, but when I sold my business, and of course, you mentioned the book and all of that, um, you know, I kind of was trying to reinvent myself and decide, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I decided essentially to be a bit of a, a professional mentor, working with early stage emerging tech companies, helping them with commercialization and finance, uh, but then also um, a bit of an angel investor. And I did that on my own for a while, but after uh, I realized that I just didn't love working from a home office and I missed being around lots of people. I basically had been looking for a place to hang out uh, that would be sort of a synergistic environment. And I bumped into a buddy of mine at, at Faskin, Martino, and uh, he was tasked with the question, you know, how does big law, old traditional law firm, do business with small tech, recognizing that, you know, these companies um, have significant legal requirements because of protection of intellectual property and, and all sorts of other reasons. Uh, and yet they don't have a lot of money. And these law firms are expensive and these companies have no money and they're just not able to figure out how to do business together. And my friend was sort of struggling with that question. And here am I sort of looking for a place to hang out. And with the background that I had, we sort of put our heads together, and so my role is really now twofold. Um, I'm one, this business advisor, so focusing on, you know, who's, what's the product, who's the customer, what's the margin, what's the team that's going to be involved in executing this, who's the competition, how much money is it going to take to get to market, um, what, who's that investor likely to be, and how much, you know, what's the deal look like. So that's kind of one piece. And the second piece is I see myself as an intrapreneur, um, building a small business inside this big organization, offering legal services to these emerging tech companies on a completely different uh, business model. And so that's kind of what I do. Uh, I work exclusively with early stage, uh, mostly tech, but just fast growth companies. <clears throat> and... Um, I guess, you know, trying to help them get to that next level, make sure that their uh, ducks are all in a row from a legal perspective, because when that investor comes in or when the buyer comes in, they're going to do due diligence and you want to make sure that everything's tickety-boo. 
Awesome. And Jeff, obviously most of your work is with, as you said, startups, but mostly with entrepreneurs. Is this a good time in Canada uh, to start your own business? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it could be better. Uh, I don't, I'm not saying it's ideal, uh, but it is better than it has ever been. Um, I think that there's, particularly in cities like Montreal, Toronto, of course, or the Toronto-Waterloo corridor, uh, Vancouver, um, to a lesser extent in Ottawa, but we do see it. You know, there are these hubs uh, that have been created principally by government, but private sector have come on board. And, you know, our universities are amongst the best in the world. Our hospitals are amongst the best in the world. Our doctors and professors and scientists and the technical people. So, you know, Canada has, you know, great ta talent. Um, we have um, government support for this stuff. And um, there is more and more capital becoming available, although I would say that there's still a shortage of capital, and that's one of the major challenges that these companies have. So would you say that that's the biggest impediment that uh, Canadian startups have versus the U.S. side in tech, primarily? Well, it's market, right? So, you know, Canadians tend to be parochial and, you know, focus on Canada. Um, you know, we only have a 35 million population. So if you want to be a big company, you're going to have to look beyond Canada's borders. And uh, historically, Canadians have been a little timid, except in a few sectors like mining, oil and gas, where we had, you know, true expertise. Um, but, you know, I think the companies that have succeeded, the Canadian companies that have gotten big, have had to look at global markets, have had to look to the United States or China or India or Europe or whatever. And so... That's really, you know, I think the limitation is this, this lack of ambition. You know, Canadians tend to be a little more cautious. And I guess that's good when it comes to our banks during the crash of 2008. But, you know, once the engines start roaring around the world, there are entrepreneurs from other countries that are just much more aggressive, think bigger. Um, and so I think that's an, an impediment. Interesting. And, and obviously we're talking about tech, right? And I think the biggest themes right now are around artificial intelligence, intelligence, AI, machine learning, big data. Where do you see tech primarily have a, the biggest influence on other sectors like healthcare, financials? Well, I think that every single company today is a tech company. You know, uh, not long ago, there was the tech sector. You know, there was technology, there was computers, there was you know, med tech and, and, you know, there was technology, but those were very specialized and there were scientists and engineers and, and whatnot. But every business today is a technology business. Every business is either being disrupted by technology and is going to have to adapt or its operational um, tools are being uh, disrupted by technology and jobs are being disrupted and, and we see it everywhere. So I don't think there's a business that doesn't have to understand technology. Um, and so those are the customers in some cases, but they're also the you know product developers and, and, and entrepreneurs. What sort of disruption do you see happen most, say, within the next five to ten years? Well, I just think that there's so – I think the biggest challenge we're going to have is to match the talent requirement in terms of employees – 
with the skill set that our labor force has, right? Canada may be a highly educated labor force relative to some parts of the world, but our labor force does not have the tools en masse to do business in the 21st century economy. We need more engineers, we need more scientists, people coming you know, through STEM. Because people without those skills are going to be disrupted by artificial intelligence, by robotics, by, and their jobs are going to go away. You know, when you hear Donald Trump talking about making America great again and bringing jobs back from China and India, like that is never happening. Jobs in China and India and Mexico and here and in the U.S. are more likely to be taken away by technology, by artificial intelligence, by robots, by uh, all sorts of technology that are job killers. And it does generate jobs, but they're high intelligence jobs. They're highly skilled jobs. The, um, you know, commoditized jobs, jobs that involve rote, clerical, clerical work, all middlemen. I mean, disruption of middlemen. There'll be no middlemen. The world is getting rid of middlemen by using technology. Blockchain is a good example of how it destroys the middleman. But even just the internet, where e-commerce gets rid of retail, gets rid of, you know, all the middlemen. Um, so that's where I see. I see that we're entering into a period where there's a mismatch between skills and jobs, and that there's going to be a lot of people disrupted by this, and some people are hurt. And you're seeing the canary in the coal mine, the people that voted for Trump in the U.S., whose jobs are gone, they don't understand it, and they don't have the skills, and he's making promises that he can't keep. On this topic, Jeff, I just want to stick to this point, because I recently actually finished a book called The Humans Are Underrated, and it's talking about exactly the, the subjects you were sort of mentioning. When I, we obviously discuss the challenges, right? So if you're not specialized in AI and machine learning and in that deep technology, then, then obviously, I mean, your labor is going to be disrupted. You're going to have to figure things out. What opportunities do you think that we as humans are going to uh, to really have to depend on? What qualities, traits in the next 10, 20 years uh, that, that technology well, cannot replace yeah. fundamentally? I'm no expert in this. Like, I, you know, I'm just a, an observer who's trying sure. to kind of figure it out for myself and my clients and my kids and, you know, family. Um, but I think creativity is probably the number one um skill you know the ability to think creatively to work collaboratively um, to have the understanding of basic science mathematics and technology um, it never hurts to be a great salesperson you know um, you know if you can generate revenue you can always eat <laughs> right <laughs> like the salesmen rarely starve they're you know they'll just stay up late and work harder and you know get their quota you, they're, you know, they're the last people to get laid off because they're eat-what-you-kill kind of characters. So, I mean, and leadership, I mean, but I think in this economy, the creativity, the, the ability to generate new ideas, to see the disruption that's coming and, and figure out those strategies to try and adapt. And, and what I'm seeing is change is happening exponentially faster, you know, we look at what happened. I mean, the the iPhone is not even 10 years old, or maybe it is 10 years, but it's not much more than that. And the world, like every decision we make 
is using one of these, you know, and every purchase and our lives have changed so much in the 10 years. I can only imagine what it's going to be like in the next 10 years. It's, it's funny. We talk about, you know, just, uh, I want to go back to, because we're talking about challenges, uh, lessons from the edge, your book, plus the seminar that you were, you were hosting and still do. What do you find startups are having the biggest uh, difficulty with it? But when actually starting this out and going on this journey, what, what are the biggest mistakes that, the, that they're actually doing? Well, uh, I, I, there's a bunch of things. Um, first of all, a big mistake that I see is with respect to the ownership of their technology. So we have all these one we talked about it earlier in the conversation about all these hubs and environments and ecosystems <coughs> that have been you know developed and built across Canada and elsewhere. Um, and so what they're really designed to do is, is, is environments where you have collaborative creation, you know, creativity. And so that's great. You know, product development, new marketing ideas, like all oh, the juices are flowing, everybody's brainstorming, it's all great. The problem is that when you come out the other end out of a incubator program, a startup weekend, uh, you know, coding in your buddy's basement and have a hackathon or whatever – who owns the intellectual property, right? And people don't think about it. And they promise percentage ownership to this guy and that guy. Well, you saw the movie Social Network, you know, this Facebook story. Well, look at all the problems he had with partners and the guys, those two twins who, you know, claimed that they had, it was their idea. It's because of that collaboration, those conversations, it muddies the water over ownership of intellectual property. And under the law, just if you do nothing, the author generally is the owner. So whoever actually sat and coded or did the logo or what created whatever they created, that person owns it unless there's some sort of agreement that it's either owned by somebody else or in a company that whatever. But most people don't think about this. They're very focused on the product and, and as they should be. But they come out the other end and it could be a real problem because if you're not all still friends or you don't all agree on how this thing's going to go forward, you've got to get everybody to sign off. And if you have an outlier, then your whole thing can fall apart. Or you may have unintended partners that you didn't expect because you didn't sort of think it through. So that's a big challenge that we see. And no investor, no VC, no angel investor, or no purchaser down the road is going to buy a company that doesn't own its intellectual property if it's a tech company. Like, it just stands to reason. So that's a big problem. The second challenge I find is, you know, people not knowing how to scale. I mean, I guess before that, the, the, the next big problem is finding that first customer, right? You know, it's always, it's, you know, getting traction, finding the customer, figuring out the price, you know, trying to figure out just where you fit in this market and actually showing some traction. That's tough. Once you have traction, then the next challenge is scaling it. And there doesn't seem to be as much experience in Canada in terms of scaling companies as we see in other places like Silicon Valley. And that, that, that may be one of the reasons you see Canadian companies moving to the Valley. Um, also because the, the third problem or the fourth, I can't remember where we are, is just a, a limits in capital availability. There's quite a bit of money at the early, early, early stage, you know, government, government grants, shred, you know, all sorts of, 
programs, you know, friends and family, you know, you can usually raise somewhere between two hundred and five hundred thousand dollars between government and friends and family if you've got a decent idea and you're a mature sort of entrepreneur. It's going beyond that level and getting professional investment where you need um, you need some traction. It's it's really unusual for you know Canadian VCs to invest in a startup that doesn't already have some traction, have customers, have users. You know, they know that they're, they're investing in scaling up. They're not investing in, you know, getting off the ground. And, and talking about <laughs> capital, Jeff, uh, okay, so let's play out a scenario. I have a startup. I'm looking to raise capital. I'll maybe go to, to Angel or, or a VC after my, my seed round, maybe a private equity. What are the biggest mistakes startups are doing to actually reach out to those VCs and, and get their attention, even if the product is, is worthy of their time? Well, you just have to have basic things, right? Like you got to think about what would what's a VC's business here? Um, you know, their business is to put money out and get it back within five to eight years or maybe five to ten years in some cases with some kind of like big return. That's it. That's all they're interested in. So they're going to look at all the risks and they'll do their legal due diligence. And if you don't own your IP, then, you know, we're not interested if you don't, if you got all sorts of weird, you know, share structure and cap table with, you know, you crowdfunded your deal and you got 300 investors, they'll take a pass because they don't want to be partners with lots of yahoos. You know, there's lots of things that they kind of look for. Um, and, and what you need to do is in your presentation is make sure you have all those things in place. So, you know, what's the product? You know, what's the big problem that you're trying to solve? What is this problem? You know, and, you know, how big is the problem? You know, what's the market? And then, you know, what's your solution to that problem? And is it sort of a incrementally better solution, you know, or, is it, you know, nice to have solution? Or is it a must have solution? It's going to, you know, disrupt this and make it so much better for the user consumer. And then who's the competition? You know, who else is out there and how do you, you know, what's your barrier to entry? How do you protect yourself from all the competition jumping in? Or And even if they're not sort of direct competition, but the people you're disrupting, how quickly can they pivot to try and, you know, are they going to buy you? Or are they going to start your, you know, son of you, right? So they're going to look at all of that. They're going to look at the team, you know, what their track record is, who they are, what they've done. You know, they're going to look at the um the, 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 the financial projections, and they're going to look at the assumptions. Like, do they make sense? You know, if your first year revenue is $40 million and you have to sell to a million people at, you know, $40 a, you know, a, a, an item, you know, where are you going to get the f- million people? You know, what's your marketing strategy? What's the cost? You know, what's the return? What's the, the lifetime value of a customer? What's the cost of acquisition of the customer? And all of that stuff has to make some sense because, if it's pie in the sky, then people will realize you don't know what the heck you're doing and they won't back you. And they're also looking for sort of that, the big upside <clears throat> because they invest in a portfolio approach and it's high risk sector, relatively speaking. So they're shooting for the moon. You know, they're expecting some of them to fail. So the ones that succeed have to have a big enough potential upside to offset the risk of, you know, some of them failing. 
So, you know, the expectation in terms of return and upside will be significant. And there will be, you know, sometime, some kind of time horizon because these funds have a life. They're a limited partnership and they have a life. And at the end of that life, they got to give back the money to the investors. So <clears throat> you don't want to be taking money from a fund that's really close to its redemption period. Right? You want to be at the front end of the fund because at the back end of the fund, they may put pressure on you to sell or refinance or do something when it's not that convenient for you. So there's lots of things to think about. That's why, they need, about a, that's why they need a guy like me to guide them through this <laughs> horrible, scary process. There you go. You're right. scaring me now. I don't <laughs> Ooh, scary. <laughs> well, we were talking about exits, Jeff, and I just wanted to sort of mention this uh, during our podcast, but what sort of exits are most common? I mean, I know we're talking about pressure, right? And if a VC is pressuring you, you might exit by a sellout or, or you might be acquired or you merge. What, what sort of transitions or patterns are, are you seeing? Um, the least uh, common exit is an IPO. You know, we're not seeing a lot of activity in Canada or the U.S. for that matter. I mean, there are, but I mean, that, the companies that go public are the household names, you know, Google, Facebook. But you're not seeing, you know, early stage, fast growing tech companies going public that often. It's, it's rare. Um, so the exits, I guess a lot of them, particularly in Canada, are, are what I would call uh, aqua hire situations where they're acquiring the company, A, to acquire whatever the cool technology is, but the team of engineers that built it and they'll absorb them into you know, the acquiring company and, and they'll have bought that product. You know, I see things all the time that, you know, people are trying to bolt on to existing success um, products, you know, uh, products to, you know, for Uber drivers or products for, you know, the tag along onto Amazon. And, you know, well, if those basic businesses change their model, you're kind of out of business or they could just, you know, build what you're building, or maybe they'll just buy you and you could be part of their offering because you've, you know, improved their product. So I see some of that sort of strategic acquisitions. Um, you know, there are big fish, uh, you know, big companies that are look, you know, our public that are looking just to buy earnings and buy. So when a company becomes a certain size, they could be acquired by, you know, a software acquisition company um achievers was bought by a company like that called uh it was called blackhawk so um the, you know that, those are the usual scenarios private equity sometimes um you know there's lots of ways i see a lot of it going to the states but the activities cross border and i also think we're going to see a lot more uh companies coming to canada for access to the U.S. market because of this immigration business with the, you know, the new Trump administration. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, tech community is, it comes from Asia, right? And I'm not saying they're all Muslim, but there are large portions. And if people who are newcomers to the United States don't feel comfortable then these companies aren't going to be able to get the employees they need. And they're going to, and Canada is just a so much more tolerant environment. So I think we're going to see a uptick in activity coming this way um, in the next short term. Anyhow, we'll see.
we're, we're seeing a lot of companies as well uh, raise capital through through crowdfunding, right? And I remember when, when I first met you through uh, the event at Ryerson that you were speaking at, we, we sort of talked about this uh, a little bit and asked you a question as a follow-up. What, what, what are the advantages uh, and sort of disadvantages of not only crowdfunding but equity crowdsourcing? Well, the biggest problem, well, first of all, you know, crowdfunding seems to be best when we're dealing with things that can pull on your heartstrings. You know, it's like an emotional kind of buy. So the ones that do well on the, you know, the um, donation and pre-sale kind of crowdsourcing, they're all consumer things that, you know, hit at emotions and, you know, got great videos and go viral and it causes people to make an impulse buy. I think it's very hard to crowd fund anything that's kind of an enterprise level sophisticated type of product. Unless there's a specific marketplace for, you know, accredited investors like an angel list or something like that that sort of corrals them. But as a general rule, I don't, you know, I think that if you want mass, it's going to be consumer. Because plus the consumers kind of understand it. It's easier to understand because they might be the user for it. Um, the One of the negatives is that Venture capitalists, if, if that's the way you're going down the road for a subsequent round of financing, just don't like being partners with 200 yahoos from, you know, wherever and that are each in for a thousand bucks or 2,500 bucks. Having a complicated cap table just is not that appealing. And having all these partners, you could have class action lawsuits, you could have who knows. And they just don't want, you know, it's just not worth the aggravation. So sometimes they'll have to clean it up. I'm working with a client right now where we're, they crowdfunded. They have, I don't know, a couple, 300 investors. And it's very hard for them to convince the venture capital community that they should invest. And so we're looking at a private equity situation where the private equity investor might uh, take out these investors, give them a return, and then put additional capital into the business to help for the growth capital. But it's not as clean, um, so it's tougher. Now, maybe over time, you know, these types of uh, financings will become more common. People become more used to it. People will come up with mechanisms to provide liquidity or some secondary market. Because, I, I, you know, I, these things always evolve. I just, I'm not the genius to know where it's going to be. But I'm sure they'll figure it out. I'm just not sure what it'll look like exactly. You know, I took an entrepreneurship class in university, and one of the biggest stats they usually float around or flaunt is that nine out of ten businesses usually fail upon upon starting up. I just, I'm, I'm always curious. I mean, obviously, we, we all know certain reasons why, but with your tangible experience, why do you think that is? And I know you mentioned this before. Well, I wrote a book. And there's 50 reasons, <laughs> you know, like, and and the thing I found is that when you talk to people and they tell their stories, they're not coming up with new reasons. They're, 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 they just picked one of the 50, or maybe they picked a couple of the 50. But they seem, people seem to make the same mistakes, right? Okay. They, they just they, they seem to make the same mistakes. Um, you know, business isn't rocket science. There is a little bit of luck. But, you know, the, the, you got to have a customer. Like the bottom line is you have to have a customer. you got to have a product that people will buy for a price that you can make money at. I mean, it's as fundamental as that. Beyond that, 
Obviously, there's all these strategies. I mean, a lot of things fall apart because of partners. You know, they get involved and they're in love with the business and they're really excited about the opportunity, but they don't really um, take a good hard look at who they're getting into partnership with and whether they share the same values, the same timelines, you know, work ethic, uh, all that sort of stuff because everybody's all excited about the business and about the product and, whoa, we just got a new customer. But then when things get a little tough and time elapses, we find this guy's, you know, a bit of a slacker or this guy has reached his capacity that she or he's not smart enough to, you know, fulfill the function now that the company's grown and our needs have grown. And so they end up in battles with partners and, you know, people just, it's like a marriage. It's really easy to get into, but it can be very messy to get out of it. And so it's like I said earlier about the intellectual property. It's often a good idea at the very beginning with your co-founders to sort of sort out what everybody's going to do, what our expectations are, what our timelines are, you know, really hash it out, have a fight, you know, don't go to bed, mad, you know, like, Work, figure out how you're going to resolve problems because there will be problems and then ultimately get, get yourself a shareholders agreement so that if there are problems, you know, you can have some kind of tool to navigate your way out of it without the cost of going to court and or having the business fail because, you know, you're focused on fighting and not selling. I want to ask you just this question because I, I usually hear it you know, from my community, from my friends. You know, they'll have an idea, maybe it's an app, and they're so scared to share it with the world. And I remember when I, when I was sitting in the front row of that Ryerson event, you said this exact thing is, you know, actually share it, get people's advice. Obviously, be careful, be a bit selective of who you, you talk to and receive feedback from, but uh, you should actually receive this feedback so that it makes or improves uh, the idea or product that you have. Can you just speak a bit about that? Well, first of all, most people are lazy, <clears throat> and most people like how many people do you actually know, you know, start businesses? I mean, more so today, but most people just don't, you know, they're all talk and no action. And I just find if you, you know, I just used to say to my kids, like 90% just showing up, right? So I just find most people don't show up. And so I just don't think it's a big risk. Um, you're, the question at the, my presentation came in the context of whether you should get a a venture capital fund to sign an NDA. And what I said was that they wouldn't sign one because they see like tens of deals a day, hundreds of deals a week. And, you know, who knows whether it, they've seen it before, might see it tomorrow. Like they just, and they're not, in the, and they're not in the business of stealing your, like they got their own problems. They got all this money and they got to get it out and, and manage it and get a return on it. Like they're not starting up a widget business. Like that's just not, you know, it's not their business. Um, you know, somebody in, in competition with you, if you, you know, if you've got a newfangled telecom solution or, you know, uh, streaming, video streaming thing, like I probably wouldn't run to Rogers right away just because, you know, it's a threat to them and they would, might interest that, be interested in the, you know, competitive intelligence. But most people, and, and the other side of the equation is you need to prove validation. Like to get any money, to get any customers, you need to understand whether you've got a product that you know, anybody wants to buy. 
And then you have to understand, you know, what would they pay? Like, what's the price for this? And then you have to understand, can I make it for that price and still have enough margin to make a living and run a business? And so, you know, those kinds of questions, you're not going to answer them in the abstract. You got to hit the streets and talk to customers, talk to people. I mean, if you look at the lean startup sort of methodology by Eric Reese and David Blank and, and or Stephen Blank, people like that, um, you know, that's what they say, you know, create your MVP, your minimum viable product, a prototype, and go out and test it and find out whether people like it, what they'll pay, how they would use it, what features they like, what things they're not like. And what, based on that feedback, you're going to then make a decision on a pivot. Do you stay the course or do you implement some of the feedback and change somewhat direction? And then you do it again and go into the market for feedback and understand whether you're on the right track now. And then you make a decision about pivoting again. Do you stay the course or do we make a, uh, you know, make a change? And so I just think you got to get out there and talk to people and try and sell it because at the end of the day, that's everything. People so often believe in what I call the um, field of dreams school of startups. The field of dreams, the famous saying is, if they build it, if we build it, they will come. Well, it isn't like that. If you build it, they might not know you exist, so then they don't come. Or you build it for the wrong price, or you build like it just it doesn't work that way. So you got to build it, and you got to test it, and then you got to build it again and test it and figure it out. And it's tough. I mean, I have a client who, you know, he it's very interesting. He he had a brilliant idea, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what the revenue model was. Like I could see how people would use what he was offering, but I just didn't understand how he was going to get paid. And he was disrupting Google, okay? So he was taking on something that Google was doing, but they were like the, the primary player in that market. So, you know, I'm looking at this thing and I say, well, you got two strikes against you. You got, you know, a business model that nobody can foresee, at least I can't. And you got, and you're trying to take users away from Google. Well, good luck to you. Good luck to you. So, you know, he wasn't sure and, you know, entrepreneurs are taught and, and it's in their DNA never to, you know, take no. So I said, look, I'll introduce you to a whole bunch of people. You go talk to them. And, you know, don't believe me, you know, and I, there were people in the space, other potential mentors that were relevant to what they were trying to do. And he went out and he did it and he talked to them and they gave him the same advice, it turns out. Um, and he pivoted. He pivoted like so big you wouldn't believe it because it really had nothing to do with the old idea. But through these conversations and through the feedback, it, it inspired an idea. And that idea today does about two or three million in revenue. We just closed a four million dollar financing. They've got fifty or sixty employees. Um, blah 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 blah. And, you know, he pivoted and he got feedback and he like followed that lean process. And, you know, it works. Not always, but it works. You know, I, I think splitting equity when you're first starting out is, is always a difficulty. So maybe if we put out a scenario, say there's you know, two developers on the team, 
two on the team that are in charge of business development, marketing, and maybe investor relations. Say, how do you how do you go about splitting equity? Do you do one hundred percent and then taper down? Do you do you leave a little room for uh, for partnerships? Like, who, who gets more, more control usually? Is it the developer or the business side? Well, it really it depends. I don't think there's any sort of hard and fast rules. Um, you know, the problem is that what you need in your business today is not necessarily the same as what you might need for your business, you know, a year or two years from today. So you often uh, overcompensate founders because you don't sort of anticipate that their contribution is going to maybe be less so down the line. And, you know, you never own as much of your business as you do day one or, you know, in the early days because if this is successful, in most cases to scale it, they're going to bring in outside investors who are going to dilute everybody down. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule, but I think you got to think about these kinds of things as part of the process. And you have to think about, you know, what that contribution, because most of these guys, it's sweat equity of some sort. And, you know, how are they going to be, you know, compensated for that? And is 25% of the business overcompensation? You know, if thing sells for $100 million, you got $25 million. So did he really contribute that much value? Or did he just win the lottery and rode your coattails, right? And you're going to resent them for the rest of your life because you made this guy rich and all he did was, like, draw the logo or, you know, the the first user interface that was such a piece of crap that nobody ever never saw the light of day and we had to hire like another guy and now this guy works for that guy, right? Like you see that, right? Where people, the job outgrows the people and and so you just got to be thinking about it and got to be brutally honest about it. One technique that can be used is some sort of stock option arrangement where this stuff vests over a period of time based on either just staying for a period of time, you know, with three-year vesting, a third, a third, a third, or it could be based on certain performance. Um, you know, this guy is the sales and marketing guy. Okay, when you bring me the first uh, $500,000 in revenue, you know, it vests. You bring me the next 500000 the next third vests, or whatever. I mean, it's you can customize it. But that's one way of dealing with it. Um, off, you know, if people put up cash, then cash is king. Because really what we're talking about now is sweat equity, right? Like you're talking about how to divide it up because we're all going to work. Well, I think you got to assume you're all going to get paid, right? Like, and then there's some risk. There's some risk that you're taking for taking, <clears throat> taking a job with a startup instead of, you know, that developer going to work for, you know, Microsoft or whatever because they'll, you know, his, his $100,000 salary, they'll pay him every two weeks direct deposit, whereas the startup, you know, you're getting $100,000 of something, you know, so you want to get some upside for the risk that you're taking for not getting paid either anything or whatever. So, I mean, you got to think of it in those terms, not just, you know, it's my idea or, you know, because ideas are a dime a dozen. I get them every day, but they're worthless unless you actually Exactly. Last question I have for you, Jeff. Uh, so I just wanted to know what's what's next for you. Like, what's in store? Is it another book, seminars, maybe starting a business? What do you have in mind? 
You know, I'm loving what I'm doing. Um, you know, Fask and Martineau, for me, it's been, um, you know, I was on the front lines and, you know, sort of the, the, the I guess, chief operating officer. I mean, we didn't have titles like that, but I was really the hands-on partner in our business and, you know, often uh, dealt with problems in some of the investments we had and had to go in as an interim CEO or fire people or hire people or put it into bankruptcy and make those kinds of decisions. So it was a, you know, I did it for a long time. It was a stressful uh, business and we had ups and downs like so many businesses. So at this stage of my life, when I had the exit and I wanted to stay involved in business, this was really a way that I could have my cake and eat it too. You know, I'm living vicariously through these entrepreneurs. I'm able to, I get paid to do it. Yeah, I'm not going to, you know, make millions doing it, but it's what I love to do. It's it's a way for me to stay involved in these companies at this stage in my career to give back and share, you know, at least my perspective. I'm, I've seen myself more as a sounding board. Like I'm not saying I'm always right, but let's have a conversation and figure out whether I'm right or not. Um, and so I can be, you know, I, my job is really to challenge these guys. And I find it like every day, it's another company, it's another opportunity, it's another group of people. And so I'm very stimulated by that and, and enjoy doing it. I mean, we just did a deal, a uh, three-year commitment to 111, the growth uh, accelerator program that just moved into uh, a huge space uh, and is going through a major uh, expansion. So, you know, getting involved in that community and helping companies there and elsewhere, of course, um, it's it keep me busy for a long time to come. So, um, you know, anything's possible. Um, Faskins has given me the opportunity to exercise my creative uh, juices in the sense that I'm able to uh, help them figure out, you know, what's the business model. So I really am, you know, I said entrepreneur, like I run this little thing that I'm doing from a business perspective, you know, it's a P&L, I've got a team of people, we've got a philosophy and a focus and a strategy. Um, and we're trying to make it happen. And we think we're the go-to firm in, in Canada for this. I mean, there are other people. We were first in the market. We've been innovating all along. Um, and, and everybody else is sort of emulating us and cap, you know, playing catch-up on us, and which is forcing us to continue to innovate and to think about how to deliver our services and, and my insights to people and leverage that. And um, anyhow, so I find it to be a challenge, and it's fun. It's I mean, I, I do this because I love to do it. I'm glad to know that you're uh, you're following your passion and that you're in a happy place, Jeff. So uh, thanks so much for doing this. That's great, George. Good to see you. Thank you, and we'll see you soon. All right, and have a nice weekend. Take care. Bye-bye.